Nikki Haley's path to victory. Impossible? No. Difficult? Yep. The lead starts right now. Tonight in South Carolina, Nikki Haley gets ready to make her new pitch, why she believes she should stay in the race despite losses in both Iowa and New Hampshire. Today, even more GOP heavyweights urging her to get out. Her number one hype man, Governor Chris Sununu, will be here as Haley assesses her campaign. Plus, a big endorsement for President Biden today as his campaign sees 2024 closing in on a two-man race between Biden and Donald Trump. And a new mystery involving Russia. This one, a plane crash and conflicting accounts about who or what was on board that plane. Was it 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war, as Russia claims, or was it weapons for war, as Ukraine says? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our 2024 lead and Republican voters delivering Donald Trump another historic victory, sending him one step closer to the White House. Today, Nikki Haley's campaign insists they still see a path forward for the former South Carolina governor to dethrone Donald Trump after his double-digit victory in New Hampshire last night. In the modern history of elections, it is worth pointing out, no non-incumbent has ever before won both Iowa and New Hampshire, ever, until Donald Trump. The Haley campaign has even released its first two ads in her home state of South Carolina, which is set to hold the next true contest between her and Trump and where she's set to hold a rally in just a few hours. Biden too old. Trump too much chaos. A rematch no one wants. There's a better choice for a better America. Nikki Haley delivered thousands of jobs, lower taxes, tough immigration laws. Same old Biden and Trump or new conservative leadership. And that is Haley's basic pitch to Republican voters, one we saw her repeat yesterday in her concession speech. Most Americans do not want a rematch between Biden and Trump. The first party to retire its 80-year-old candidate is going to be the party that wins this election. But despite Governor Haley projecting confidence, the Republican Party continues to coalesce around the former president, with even more elected officials falling in line to endorse him, and the head of the Republican National Committee suggesting that Haley's time is up. I think she's run a great campaign, but I do think there is a message that's coming out from the voters, which is very clear. We need to unite around our eventual nominee, which is going to be Donald Trump. And we need to make sure we beat Joe Biden. If she came in second here, I don't see the path. Let's bring in CNN's John King at the Magic Wall for us. John, as Haley's campaign plots a path forward here, they've got to figure out what worked in New Hampshire and what did not. So, so where did she do well and where did she underperform? All right, so let's clear this out and take a look. And number one, you did it at the top. Like Donald Trump or not, you have to give him his due. That's never been done before, right? A non-incumbent winning both Iowa and New Hampshire. So if you're Nikki Haley, you have to change. A map can't fill, keep filling in Donald Trump red, right? And so what did she do well? Look at this yellow down here. They said they need to win Portsmouth and the suburbs around there. They did. Uh, they said they needed to win Hollis, just that left of Nashua there. They did. So they met many of their targets. Look at this number. Nikki Haley got 38,000 more votes than Donald Trump did eight years ago when he won New Hampshire. That's a pretty remarkable accomplishment, except 
Turnout was record. Donald Trump got 173,000 votes. We're still counting the final ones there. So Trump won. Jake, you just played that ad. The tagline was interesting. She said, new conservative leadership. That is her problem. She's winning moderates. In New Hampshire, she won undeclared voters. Donald Trump is trouncing her among conservatives. As this goes on, her path is getting more narrow. You could argue by the hour she needs to win conservatives. That's the challenge next. So she says she's staying in the race. What is the path forward for her? Right. So uh, Nevada is next. Let's pull this out. There's caucuses there. Donald Trump has that state party pretty much on his side. So her next challenge is her home state of South Carolina. She was the governor for six years. You saw that ad trying to promote her record. So this is what the Haley campaign says, that if you look at the primaries ahead and the caucuses ahead, everybody slow down. Just like in New Hampshire, they are arguing in the 24 contest through Super Tuesday, early March, 11 of them are open or semi-open, meaning either there's no party registration like South Carolina, so anybody can show up for the Republican Party, or it's a state like New Hampshire or Independence or Democrats' last same-day switch or something can vote in the Republican primary. That is all true. There are states, Missouri's one of them, Virginia's one of them, Texas is one of them, where ostensibly, you know, independents could come into the mix or Democrats could switch and come into the mix. However, Jake, you remember this campaign in 2000. That's what John McCain said when he beat George W. Bush you know, in New Hampshire in 2000. You know, and Bush said, I'm going to South Carolina. This is going to be over soon. They kept saying, this is a constant argument. There are states ahead, terrain ahead. We know from these states in past elections, always keep an open mind, it's a much more conservative electorate than New Hampshire. So the challenge, especially if she can't win South Carolina, her home state, is enormous. And, and obviously, staying in this race is going to cost a lot of money. How are the campaigns spending when it comes to ads in South Carolina? Are Trump and Haley equal there? No, they're not even close. And that has been a pattern so far. Trump, because of his name identity, because of the love he has, that's what it is among Trump Republican voters. Uh, he hasn't had to campaign as much. He hasn't had to spend as much. Uh, Nikki Haley and pro Nikki Haley Super PAC so far have $5 million booked or spent in TV ads in South Carolina. The Trump campaign only $384,000 now. Watch. Trump campaign sources telling our correspondents, Christian Wilson, Christian Holmes and others who cover the campaign, that Trump is going to get hard on Haley to make sure he thinks South Carolina should be the end of it. So let's see if they actually spend money or if they do it in other ways. But right now, Haley is spending. Trump so far, Jake, just hasn't had the need because he's winning. The question yeah. is, does that continue? And it gets dirty in South Carolina, as yes, I don't need to can. tell as I don't need to tell Governor Haley. John Kang, thanks so much. I want to bring in CNN's Jamie Gangel and Jamie, you have some brand new reporting on Haley's plan to stay in the race. What is it? Right. So this is politics. They are in until they're not in. But as of four oh six PM today, mm -hmm. I spoke to a senior advisor on her campaign who says they are in at least through South Carolina. The quote was a hundred percent. I'm also told you're talking to John about the money question. They say they have plenty of money to stay in. And so why are they staying in? There is always that what if scenario. What if something happens with Donald Trump? What if something happens with these legal cases? Uh, as the source said to me, quote, politics is unpredictable, but Donald Trump is certainly unpredictable. <laughs> That's fair. Right. That's fair. Donald Trump has not participated in any of the Republican debates this election cycle. That hasn't stopped Haley uh, from, from trying to goad him to join her on the debate stage, including last night. Take a listen. The other day, Donald Trump accused me of not providing security at the Capitol on January 6th. No, I've long called for mental competency tests for politicians over the age of 75.
Trump claims he'd do better than me in one of those tests. Maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. But if he thinks that, then he should have no problem standing on a debate stage with me. So supporters of Nikki Haley say they don't think Donald Trump has the guts to, to face her on a debate stage. What do, you, what do you think? Look, they know she triggers him. And I can guarantee you, you're going to hear something very much like that tonight at her rally and over and over again. And what's the reaction? We heard, I, th I think, uh, last night that Trump was seething yeah. over the fact that she stayed in the race. When you make someone angry, as one of the sources on her campaign said, you can make them make mistakes, like confusing you for Nancy Pelosi. Right. Although you could argue that this is a, a mistake-proof electorate for Donald Trump. They seem to forgive quite a bit. Your sources are looking at a few things Nikki Haley are going to try to take advantage of moving forward. What are they? Look, I think you're going to hear this debate line over and over and over again. She is going to try to trigger him. They are going to call him a coward for not uh, coming up. But I think the other thing, they're the themes we've heard so far. Yes, he got all those registered Republicans and the conservatives, but she's going to say that she gets the independents, the moderates, the suburban women, the people who in a general election will make the difference. So it's going to be the same themes, but she's going to be going after him harder and harder. Yeah. Jamie Gangal, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss is New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. He's enthusiastically supporting Nikki Haley, to say the least. Governor, you were predicting that Governor Haley uh, could pull out a win in New Hampshire. You must be disappointed yeah. with a, a double-digit loss. Well, uh, she's finished strong. There's no doubt about it. Obviously, we you always you always want to win, but you know the the victories here are there's not six people in the race anymore. There's two um, that she surged from single digits to 20 points in Iowa to 40, 45, whatever it was here in New Hampshire. She's going into her home state. She has cash. She's put Trump's on his heels on the defensive a little bit. So there's still a lot of opportunity. I think John King really broke broke it down very very well. Still a lot of opportunity there. This guy gets triggered. He's old. You know, he's, he's just kind of counting on that, that one core base that he has where she has an entire state that she has a proven record on. So there's still a lot of positives here going into South Carolina for sure. But there's a big glaring weakness. Um, according to CNN's exit polls from last night, registered Republicans overwhelmingly supported Donald Trump. 74% for him, 24% for Governor Haley. If you can't win registered Republicans or even compete, how do you win the Republican nomination for president? Well, again, two states down, 48 to go. It's only become a one-on-one -on -one race uh, literally in the, in the past couple of weeks. She's really ramped up the attacks on him. I know that drives him crazy, but the fact is he does not have a strong record. And he is the incumbent. Let's face it. He's effectively the incumbent president. So that's a hard hill to climb to for sure. But, she's, but every time there's a hill in Nikki Haley's way, she climbs it. She knocks it down. She pushes everybody out of the race. So she's been able to have a lot of success where no one thought she was able to have it. She's got one more hill to climb, and that's to beat, that's to beat Trump in her home state. I want to get your reaction to something Donald Trump said last night during his victory speech. Take a listen. Who the hell was the imposter that went up on the stage before and, like, claimed a victory? She did very poorly, actually. She had to win. The governor said, she's going to win, she's going to win, she's going to win. Then she, she failed badly. I have to say it is obviously pretty rich for Donald Trump to 
make any comments about a second place candidate claiming victory. Um, but what, what's your response? Right. <laughs> well, you, 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 you hit the first point right there. Um, look, uh, at the end of the day, the poll said she was going to lose by 25, right? And she got it within, you know, 10, 11 points, whatever it was. So she's constantly surging and constantly outperforming. Um, so he, he, he just wants everyone to, to clear, the, clear the ranks and give them the coronation. But, and, and Ronna McDaniel is completely wrong, by the way. Right? When the head of the Republican Party says, uh, we've, we've had the voters in two states uh, have their say, we'll ignore the Republicans in the other 48 states. We're just going to ignore them and just, and just tell Trump that he's the winner. Right? So these are just establishment Washington politicians galvanizing around Trump. He used to be a disruptor. Right? He used to be the guy that was going to challenge Washington. Now he's just part of this elitism, if you will, out of the Republican Party in Washington, D.C. No one wants to... You know, tell the tell the Senate what to do. They're they're basically an out of place nursing home, if you think of it that way. Uh, he's going to be their next resident. Nikki's the next generation. She's exciting. She brings energy. She brings this great conservative record to the table. That scares him, right? Because he knows that that can surge. That that that's going to have energy. Does she have to win in South Carolina? I mean, I can't understand uh, the motivation for a candidate who doesn't win the first three contests. Don't you think it's a do or die there? I don't, and I'll tell you why. New, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina are always the filtering states, if you think of it that way, right? We always want to narrow it down. Now, she narrowed it down way faster than anyone thought. I do think when you get to Super Tuesday, you have to win. You got to win some states in Super Tuesday. I don't think uh, South Carolina is a must win, but I have no doubt she's going to do very, very well there. Today, Republican Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio, who is supporting Trump, he tweeted, quote, the Republican Party without Donald Trump is a disaster morally and politically. It's endless wars, open borders, and tax cuts for the people who benefit from endless wars and open borders. Basically, it's Nikki Haley's oh, platform, geez. which is why we so desperately need to beat her, unquote. Your response? Uh, with Donald Trump at the head of the, the party, we lose. We, we lost in 2020. We, we should have had the red wave in 22. The, he's a loser. He is candidates are losers. I'm tired of losing. Uh, he doesn't bring the, the right um, a brand, if you will, to the table, and he doesn't galvanize the party or the country together. So I appreciate J.D. Vance is hoping to get a job and another job in Washington, D.C., because he joined the Senate, realizes they don't do much, wants another job with the, with the president. But at the end of the day, all these guys that are kowtowing up to the president, I've talked to them all behind the scenes. Uh, they don't respect this guy. They're just kowtowing up to him out of fear and the hopes to get something, you know, another gig. Nikki, Nikki bucks that trend. She's not afraid of anything. She just wants this country to galvanize together around the, the right values, uh, the, you know, whether it's be national security, fiscal responsibility, just putting families and people first, not Donald Trump. Donald Trump's still out there to save himself. Nikki Haley's out to save this country. New Hampshire uh, Governor Chris Sununu, thanks so much. Good to see you, sir. You bet. It's not just Donald Trump calling on Nikki Haley to end her campaign. She's facing growing pressure here in Washington to get out, as Governor Sununu just mentioned. Ahead, I'm going to talk to a House Republican about the rumblings, the murmurs, the whispers on Capitol Hill about what this race could mean for down-ballot candidates and the overall strength of the Republican Party. Stay with us. And we're back with our 2024 lead and the record-setting night in New Hampshire. Donald Trump winning more than 166,000 votes, the most ever won by any candidate in the New Hampshire primary in either major party. With me now is Georgia Congressman Rich McCormick, a Republican who, after endorsing Ron DeSantis last night, endorsed Donald Trump for president. Congressman, thanks for joining us. In your endorsement, you say, quote, I am calling on my fellow conservatives to join me in uniting behind Donald Trump. Um, to be clear, are you calling for Governor Haley to drop out? I would love for 
to get a start on this, I'd like we only have ten minutes, uh, ten months before we get into the next uh, election, and and I think this is going to be detrimental to our party and to our country if we don't unite under under one leadership. Uh, President Trump has done some very good things for this country. I think he is going to win this uh, this primary, and I think it's time to unite under one banner and, and get our message straight right now. So Haley should drop out. You're calling on her to drop out. Well. You know, she's going to determine this. This is the United States. Each individual has the right to do whatever they want to do. Uh, I just think it's best for the party if we start to unite as a party under one banner and one message. According to exit polls, 42 percent of the people who voted in the Republican primary in New Hampshire said they don't believe Donald Trump will be fit for the presidency if he is convicted of a crime. The chance that Donald Trump is going to be convicted in one of his legal cases is not zero. Um, are you worried uh, about backing the wrong horse right now. What if he gets convicted and then you have a difficult time winning all these Republicans who are telling you in this exit poll, if he gets convicted, he's not fit? Well, the electorate is the one that determines who's winning the primary right now. President Trump is winning by, as you said, record numbers. If you look at what we're, we're dealing with right now on the border, on crime, on debt, on the size of government, on energy, on education. I think the conservative movement is picking up steam in very real ways. I think that's what we're fighting over the heart and souls and the minds of the people. And I think the people understand what's at stake right now. And I think that's why President Trump can lead us to a, a victory. Let's just take one of the issues you just raised, uh, debt. Donald Trump, uh, during his presidency, the national debt went up $8 trillion. What makes you think he would do anything about debt? <laughs> well, I, I think we look at different parties and what we stand for. Uh, I think the conservative movement is about controlling debt. You're right, we did a horrible job. I hold our party accountable. When we had control of the Senate, the House, and the presidency, we didn't do a good job of debt. That was my biggest uh, my biggest concern and criticism of that administration. I, I addressed this, and that's why I backed DeSantis at first. I thought he took the debt the most seriously. Uh, but I think for, for sure, Trump takes debt way more seriously than Biden does. I think he's learned his lessons. I think he's def definitely uh, the conservative uh, uh, in this race, and I think he's going to do better job on controlling debt than the Democrats would for sure. There are some House Republicans uh, and Senate Republicans, uh, I'm sure you know, who are worried about Trump being at the top of the Republican ticket, um, because obviously it's going to cost a lot of money to get him elected. It might cost less for Nikki Haley, for example, according to exit, uh, according to polling. Um, but beyond that, one House Republican in a swing district told CNN's Manu Raju that Trump as a nominee is going to cost your party control of the House. He went on to say, quote, 20% of Republican voters will not vote for him. Independent voters think Biden is weak, but they hate Trump. And Democrats, Trump motivates them to vote. Are, are you concerned? Uh, do you share any of those concerns? I understand the concerns, but the people, the, the conservative movement makes its choice. Now it's up to us to have a message that resonates with the people. That's why it's not just about one person. I mean, the presidency is the presidency, but we have a House, we have a Senate, we have a body that has to move this country in a certain direction. And I think that's why it's important to have messengers that aren't just one person, that we all get to carry a part of this pail of water that, that applies to all people, that we're all able to control the message, not just one person. Uh, I think President Trump has won an election before. I think he's in better position to win than he was in 2016 in many ways, because he does have a track record for a good economy, for controlling the border, for things that matter to people. And so I think the, this will play its way, way out. But I think the primary process is already deciding who our, our electorate uh, is going to choose as our primary uh, representative. So I think we need to back him and, and get behind him in the messaging and make sure we're clear on that. Republican Congressman Rich McCormick, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it, sir. 
On the other side of Capitol Hill, Senate Republicans are talking about a tense back and forth on another issue, the border and negotiations over that issue. What they're telling CNN's Manu Raju next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In our politics lead, sharp tensions over the border in Texas and on Capitol Hill. In Texas, it's a standoff over razor wire. U.S. Border Patrol wants the razor wire down. The government of Texas wants to keep it up. Today, as you can see, that wire is still up, despite Monday's U.S. Supreme Court ruling allowing the Biden administration to cut it down. On Capitol Hill, frustrations erupted yesterday in a Senate Republican lunch. Senators came out describing the back and forth as nasty as they were debating best policies to move forward with compromise legislation they've been working on with Democrats. CNN's Manu Raju is live on Capitol Hill. And Manu, some of the Republicans were openly questioning Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's strategy to move forward with the legislation. Uh, was there any resolution to this disagreement? Well, actually, right now, behind closed doors, Senate Republicans are meeting to try to figure out whether or not there is any way forward. But things have gotten incredibly tense. Divisions over strategy, over moving forward with any sort of compromise deal on immigration, as well as also sharp divisions about Ukraine funding. Remember, this is all tied together. Republicans have insisted that if they move forward with any new aid to Ukraine, which is calling for aid immediately, that there must be a deal on the border, something to their satisfaction. But there is no agreement on either, leaving deep divisions within the ranks, some demanding that the trio of senators trying to cut a deal on immigration release more information about those talks, and others openly questioning the Senate Republican leader and his handling of all of this. I don't know anything about what they're doing. I mean, I, uh, one of the gentlemen under the interstate living in a refrigerator box knows more about it than I do. What do you think of his handling of the Ukraine and immigration talks? No, McConnell. It's disastrous, clearly. Total. I mean, just look, it's a, t it's a total shambles. It's a total disaster. I mean, it's totally disastrous. Embarrassing. This bill represents Senate Republican leadership waging war on House Republican leadership. Biden has failed. We are here. We've been elected. We have election certificates. When you have an opportunity to make this country safer, you take it and you don't play politics. 
And that last comment coming from Senator Tom Tillis, who is very much in favor of these bipartisan talks. But the Republicans are facing pressure from their likely Republican nominee, Donald Trump, who has come out in opposition to any sort of bipartisan deal on immigration that is not a, quote, perfect deal or is not, quote, everything that they want. That they want. He says that they should, re they should reject it if it is not to the, exactly to their liking. And that does have influence within the ranks, particularly among on-the-fence Republicans, some of whom say, let's just wait until the new year. Some of them said, are privately saying, let's not give Joe Biden a campaign win on a central issue involving immigration that is dominating and animating voters along the campaign trail, all of which is making things much more difficult, particularly among Republicans, to decide whether it's right, the right time to cut a deal or whether they should punt on this issue until next Congress, Jake. Manu, um, if the Senate reaches some sort of deal, the big question is not if House Republicans will scramble to support it, they won't, but whether or not Speaker Johnson will even allow a vote on the legislation. Um, what's your take as of now? Yeah, it's really unclear, Jake, because Johnson has not been involved in these negotiations. He has been briefed on them, but he is not a central player. As he's told you, he's told me, and he's told others, he's essentially throwing cold water on these talks, uncertain about whether he'll embrace it in large part, not just because of Donald Trump's opposition, but because there are many Republicans in his conference who either don't support aid to Ukraine or simply do not believe that there should be any sort of compromise deal, which is raising a lot of concerns among Senate Republicans who say, why vote on anything now if it has no chance in the Republican-led House? And if the Republican-led House changes the bill dramatically, then that could upset the balance with the White House or Democrats in the Senate, which just shows you how difficult it is to get anything done in an election year, particularly when it comes to immigration. Yeah, although, Jake. to be honest, Republicans had the White House and the House and the Senate, they didn't do anything about it then either. Uh, Manu Raju, thanks so much. New video shows the downing of a Russian plane, and there's a mystery deepening into who or what was on that plane. Russia claims that Ukrainian prisoners of war were on board. Ukraine says weapons were on that plane. We're going to dive into the efforts to sort this all out next. A fiery plane crash near Russia's border with Ukraine tops our world lead today. Russia's defense ministry says Ukraine shot down a military transport plane flying near Belgorod and no one on board survived. Ukraine says the plane was carrying missiles but did not claim responsibility for the attack, while Russia swears Ukrainian prisoners of war were all on board. CNN's Fred Plaikin is in eastern Ukraine for us as the White House is attempting to get more information on what actually happened. The final moments of the Russian military plane's flight, diving to the ground, seemingly out of control. After the impact, the jet explodes in a giant fireball. I heard only two explosions, this eyewitness says. The first one was a dull bang, then an explosion, then big flames. Russian media showing debris scattered across a large area at the crash site. Authorities say no one on board survived, including 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war sick to be exchanged the same day. Moscow blaming Kiev for the incident. The Ukrainian side launched an air defense missile from the Kharkiv side, Russia's foreign minister said. It targeted the airplane and was a fatal strike. The Ukrainians haven't denied shooting the plane down, but Kiev says the Russians never told them they'd be flying the Ukrainian POWs to Belgorod, holding Moscow responsible for the loss of life and the failed exchange. 
Landing a transport plane in a 30-kilometer combat zone cannot be safe and in any case should be discussed by both sides, because otherwise it jeopardizes the entire exchange process, a military intelligence statement says. Based on this, we may be talking about planned and deliberate actions of the Russian Federation to destabilize the situation in Ukraine and weaken international support for our country. Ukraine says Russia often uses the IL-76 cargo jets to transport missiles used to target Ukrainian cities and civilian infrastructure. A recent attack killing and wounding scores in Kharkiv in Ukraine's northeast. When the missile attack started, I kneeled down near the washing machine, this woman says. Look, something hit me here. Glass, glass, but I'm alive. Some people died and my flat is gone. The Ukrainians have vowed revenge for missile attacks like these and say they consider Russian cargo planes transporting missiles to be legitimate targets. So as you can see there, Jake, still a lot more questions than answers tonight. Uh, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, he came out just a couple of minutes ago and said that he had ordered all of his top generals to try and establish the fact as best they can, because, of course, the crash happened on Russian territory. The Ukrainians are saying as of right now, they have no reliable information as to who was on that plane and how many people. Jake. Fred Plykin in eastern Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Today in Gaza, the United Nations Relief Agency described, quote, mass casualties from an alleged Israeli attack. The U.N. director says two tank rounds hit a building sheltering 800 people. At least nine were killed, dozens injured. The two days of intense fighting have left Gazans trapped under rubble, others with severe shrapnel wounds. As Israel maintains, there are terrorists with Hamas embedded in the hospitals there. And Israel says it will continue its attack for, quote, several days, trying to destroy Hamas. CNN's Ben Wiedemann brings us now the desperate reality for hundreds of thousands of displaced Palestinians just trying to survive. With what little they can carry, they try to flee Khan Yunus to safer ground. That ground doesn't exist in Gaza. Israeli forces intensifying their offensive against Hamas ordered civilians to leave the western side of the city, where three of the last few functioning hospitals in Gaza are located and where thousands of people had taken shelter. Another 800 were sheltering in a UN vocational training center hit, according to the UN, by two Israeli tank rounds. The reality is that these strikes are hitting um, protected installations, protected facilities. They're hitting uh, facilities that are housing, sheltering civilians or, you know, where you have medical uh, personnel uh, tending to people who are, uh, are wounded and injured and sick. This man managed to escape Khan Yunus under shelling. He asks his children, have you eaten today? No, they respond. Hovering over the agony of this war is the specter of famine, warns Michael Fakhri, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food. How would you describe the food situation in Gaza at the moment? Every single person in Gaza is hungry. So that means 2.2 million people are going hungry. A quarter of the population are starving. They're struggling to find food and drinkable water. And famine is imminent. Since October, Gaza has become a land of nomads, moving from place to place, desperate as the war moves further south. 
For more than a hundred days, I've been in the streets, says Mohammed. We don't know where to go. They say it's safe in one place, and then it's dangerous with shelling and shooting. We go to another place, and it's the same thing. Hundreds of thousands have fled too, and more are fleeing every day to Rafah on the Egyptian border, now crammed with more than a million displaced. There are a few spots left in the sand. The only place after that is the sea. Ben Wiedemann, CNN, reporting from Beirut. And our thanks to CNN's Ben Wiedemann for that report. Coming up, the secrecy surrounding a controversial execution scheduled for tomorrow, Alabama plans to use an untested method to execute a death row inmate. Coming up next, how the state is managing to keep key parts of the process shielded from public scrutiny. Stay with us. In our law and justice lead, the U.S. Supreme Court has just declined to stop the first known execution in the United States using nitrogen gas. Tomorrow, the state of Alabama is set to use nitrogen hypoxia. It's a controversial alternative to lethal injection. Kenneth Smith was sentenced to death for the stabbing murder of Elizabeth Sennett in 1988. CNN's Isabel Rosales is live for us in Atmore, Alabama. Uh, and the state is facing a lot of criticism over this never-been-used uh, execution method. Isabel, you've, you've read through the state's execution procedures. How is this supposed to work? Well, Jake, death by nitrogen gas, not only is it controversial, but it's also an untested method. There is no precedent for this. Alabama is just one of three states, including Mississippi and Oklahoma, that has approved the use of nitrogen gas in death sentences, but it has never been used before. Now, I did read through Alabama's uh, execution procedure through several pages of this, and you're seeing right here part of the problem by the critics. A lot of it is redacted when it comes to the calibration and the use of this nitrogen hypoxia uh, system. And now experts say that it's shielding key details about what the state of Alabama is going to do in this execution from public scrutiny. But the state says that these uh, redactions are necessary for safety. Um, and that secrecy is troubling to a lot of these uh, uh, critics because Alabama since 2018 has botched uh, three lethal injections, including Smith, Kenneth Smith's own back in 2022, because they deviated away from this protocol. So here's what I could find out from these pages. Um, he will ultimately be strapped to a gurney. Uh, a respirator, a five-point respirator will be applied to his face. Uh, a pulse oximeter will be put on him. The warden will be in the execution chamber reading him the death warrant. He will be allowed to make a final statement up to two minutes and then they will pump that 100% nitrogen gas in, uh, depriving him of oxygen until his organs fail and then death comes. So that will be applied for 15 minutes or until he flatlines, five minutes after he flatlines on an EKG, whichever is longer. Now, Smith originally asked for um, execution via nitrogen gas, but when he saw the proposal, he became very concerned that he could vomit inside of his mask and be experiencing pain and die from choking on his vomit. I did speak with his spiritual advisor who experienced orientation, went through orientation today and spoke with Kenneth, and he says the state of Alabama is not prepared. Listen. It's lunacy. I mean, it's absolute lunacy. I mean, for months, we have been asking 
the Alabama Department of Corrections for more information. Is this going to be safe? What's going to happen? Today, I go into the chamber to orient myself with the warden and uh, one of the captains of the execution squad. And as I ask questions, he's consistently saying, either we don't know or we can't tell you. And that Reverend Jeff Hood is concerned about his own safety. He was forced to sign a waiver to be allowed into the chamber, acknowledging um, there could be harm uh, to himself. He does tell me, Jake, that he's scheduled to go um, with uh, Kenneth Smith around 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow and deliver him the Eucharist. Isabel Rosales in Atmore, Alabama, thank you so much. Let's turn to our national lead now. Boeing CEO is meeting with lawmakers on Capitol Hill today and tomorrow in an effort to address growing questions and concerns about the safety of its airliners. You'll recall earlier this month something called a door plug blew off an Alaska Airlines Boeing 737 MAX 9 during flight, leaving a refrigerator-sized hole. The plane made an emergency landing. Thankfully, everyone survived. Yesterday, the CEO of Alaska Airlines revealed that loose bolts had been discovered on many Boeing MAX planes. We found, you know, some, uh, some loose bolts on uh, many of our MAX lines. So those, many? Yeah. Uh, so those are things that are going to be rectified uh, through the inspection process. Boeing is better than this, uh, and um, uh, Flight 1282 should never have happened. So CNN's Pete Montine joins us now in, in studio. And Pete, Boeing CEO is in damage control mode after Alaska Airlines seemed to blame Boeing entirely. How did his meeting with senators go today? Well, this just broke. The chair of the Senate committee that oversees aviation now calling for hearings to investigate what she calls safety lapses at Boeing. Not likely that this was the outcome that Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun was looking for. This was his first trip to D.C. since the blowout in Alaska 1282. And here is the statement from Senate Democrat Maria Cantwell of Washington. Quote, in today's meeting with Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun, I made it clear that quality engineering and a commitment to safety always have to be the top priority. Cantwell from Washington State, where the Boeing 737 MAX 9 is built. So far, it's been a very controlled message from Boeing. And true to form, Calhoun answered few questions from reporters today. This is how he responded when asked if the public should fear his airplanes. We fly safe planes. We don't Easy put cuts. airplanes in the air that we don't have 100% confidence okay. in. I'm here today in the spirit of transparency to, number one, recognize the seriousness of what you just asked. Number two, to share everything I can with our Capitol Hill interests um, and answer all their questions because they have a lot of them. Tomorrow, Boeing will pause production for the day at the MAX 9 factory. They're calling it a quality stand down. It's like what the military does after a crash. But in this case, Boeing workers will break into smaller groups, evaluate Boeing's processes on the production floor and make recommendations on to where things can be improved. Jim. And Pete, you also spoke with the head of the Federal Aviation Administration. What did he have to say? Just did a one-on-one -on -one interview with FAA Administrator Mike Whitaker. He says that the FAA's focus is now really on Boeing's quality control. That is what's happening right now with FAA inspectors now on site at the Renton, Washington facility that builds the MAX 9. Also, what is happening is the FAA is reviewing some details that they've received from about a quarter of the MAX 9s in the U.S. 
The plane's still grounded, by the way, 171 planes. And the FAA Administrator Mike Whitaker says that ungrounding will not happen until he is certain that that airplane is indeed safe. All right, Pete Montine, thanks so much for that update. Next, the union leader who told me right here on The Lead just a few months ago why he was holding back his endorsement of President Biden. But that changed today. We're going to ask him why next when he joins us live here in studio. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, CNN exclusive new information in the ethics investigation involving Republican Congressman Matt Gates and allegations, allegations of crimes, plus a familiar voice injecting himself into this election cycle. Comedian Jon Stewart announces his return to The Daily Show. Are the stakes even higher today than when he retired in 2015? And leading this hour, one day after Republican voters get their say in New Hampshire, President Biden has scored a big endorsement from a major union, the United Auto Workers, back in September. During the auto workers' strike, the union's president was here on the lead, saying he was nowhere near ready to back Biden at the time. Our endorsements are going to be earned, not freely given, and actions are going to dictate endorsements. So we'll see how things uh, continue to play out. And uh, we have a lot of issues to resolve. Two weeks after that, President Biden showed up on the picket line to visit auto workers on strike, a visit that seems to have paid off for Biden in his 2024 campaign. Here was the president today. Look, I kept my commitment to be the most pro-union president ever. I'm proud you have my back. Let me just say I'm honored to have your back and you have mine. I was so damn proud to stand in that picket line with you. United Auto Workers, the union president, Sean Fain, uh, is here. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. So your union has more than 400,000 members. How many members do you think voted for Joe Biden in 2020? I saw an analysis that suggested that union members in Michigan and Wisconsin broke for Biden over Trump, maybe 56 to 40, but that union members in Ohio and Pennsylvania, I mean, I'm sorry, they broke for Biden over Trump in Michigan and Wisconsin, but members in Ohio and Pennsylvania went for Trump. Is that your understanding? I would put it this, this simple. The majority of our members voted for President Biden. And do you think the endorsement is a, is a big reason for that? Without the endorsement, uh, might they have more of them gone to Trump, given um, the demographics and such? I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think, you know, even going forward, when you look at both candidates, uh, it's very clear which one supports working class people and which one doesn't. Um, by one, one, two simple sentences, Joe Biden bet on the American worker and Donald Trump blamed the American worker. And, and what are you hearing from your members this time around in 2024? Um, because obviously there's a lot of dissatisfaction with Joe Biden, not just among the electorate at large, but among Democrats uh, specifically. A lot of, there's a, as of right now at least, a lack of enthusiasm for his campaign. Well, I mean, I look at it this way. I mean, there's, there's, there, there's two choices in this election, and, and it's very clear which one is going to support working class people and which one doesn't. Um, you know, you look at the body of work. You know, when we, ran, when we ran our campaign for our contracts, for our record contracts in the big three, we use facts. You know, the facts of how wealthy the corporations were, how, how wealthy the CEOs made themselves at the expense of the workers. And it's no different in this election. 
you look at the facts, the facts are very clear. Uh, you know, Donald Trump has a long history. Uh, in 2008, in the recession, he blamed the workers for what was wrong with those companies. Mm -hmm. uh, President Biden bet on the workers. And you, today you, know? you, called, you called President Trump a scam. What do you mean? Uh, he's anti-union. Uh, you know, uh, when he became president in 2015, we uh, workers, skilled trade workers at Volkswagen voted to organize. The company, as, all, as many companies do, you know, broke the law. They delayed uh, their contract when they were fighting for a contract. And because they, waited, they wanted to wait till President Trump was sworn in at the time. And then he put a anti-union National Labor Relations Board in place and in essence killed that contract. So one last question, um, and that is, I know that you're, you've expressed concern about the push uh, to electric vehicles. Um, do you still have those concerns? Because obviously President Biden continues that push. Batteries are made in China, as we know. Uh, is there a future for auto workers with electric vehicles the way that Biden is pushing it? We have a long history in this country of making everything. And I'm not concerned as far as with the transition. Our concern with the transition was we wanted it to be a just transition. And, and how it was when I took over, um, you know, uh, it, was on a, it was headed on a race to the bottom. And so, you know, we turned that around. We were able to negotiate uh, to bring that work under our master agreements in the big three. And we want to set that as a template for all the EV industry as we move forward in America. Lastly, how worried are you about Democrats winning Michigan? Uh, I'm not worried. Uh, Democrats are going to come out and they're going to vote the right way. I mean, at the end of the day, working class people know what's good for them. And, and uh, the billionaire class and, and the party that represents that interest is not good for working class people. UAW President Sean Fain, good to see you, sir. Thank you Thank so much you. for being here. Uh, let's keep it in Michigan right now. Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan joins us now. Congresswoman, so you represent this key battleground state, and, and you heard uh, Sean Fain in the UAW endorsing uh, President Joe Biden. We should know Biden won uh, the union's endorsement in 2020, but mem many of its 400,000 rank-and-file members still supported Trump. Not a majority, but maybe like 40 percent. How much does an endorsement from a union matter? Well, it depends how hard the union works once it makes the endorsement to make sure its members are educated about what their choice is, what the facts are, and why it's important to turn out voters. I have talked to President Payne about this a lot, including today, where we both said, okay, this is done, now we roll up our sleeves, put together the plan, and turn out the votes. And that's the next step. We have to do the work, educate voters to make sure they do have the facts and make sure they know what's at stake and they vote. So the Democratic Party relies a lot on Michigan's Muslim-American population, which helped Biden win the state in 2020. Uh, this day, President Biden can't give a speech without being interrupted by pro-Palestinian protesters uh, because of his support for Israel in the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, watch what happened just earlier today when he was addressing UAW members. No matter what that was, it should be... So in 2020, Biden won Michigan by less than 200,000 votes, fewer than 200,000 votes, and there are more than uh, 200,000 Muslim American voters in Michigan. Uh, how worried are you uh, that President Biden's support for Israel in the war against Hamas uh, might doom the president in Michigan? So um, 
Jake, you know that I've always told everybody Michigan is a competitive state. It is never one that you can take for granted, and it's a purple state. There are a lot of very strong feelings on this issue. But remember, we're talking about the opponent of President Biden as being someone who wants to ban Muslims. You've got to remind people of that. This is an issue that is a lot of people on both sides have had family members that have been held hostage on, on the Gaza side. Can I tell you how many of my constituents have had family members that have been killed, uh, have no food, no water, the casework that I'm doing? But today I witnessed the president have a very respectful conversation with some UAW members who raised it. I know he knows how to talk to people. It's an issue we're going to have to talk about and deal with. But again, it's going to be a contrast and we need to remind people of the facts and who uh, is, I mean, we've got to address this issue in the Mideast. It's an issue that's a big issue in many places, but I would not put our foreign affairs in the hands of Donald Trump ever. But I've heard interviews with Muslim American uh, voters in Michigan. Uh, these, these are smart people. Um, they, they're not saying they're gonna vote for Trump. They say they're not gonna vote. I think that we have to have you know what, look, people are concerned, they're worried. I talk to them every single day. But I'm also beginning to have people say who two months ago were very angry and I'm like, you'd rather have Donald Trump? And today they're saying he would really hurt this country. The damage he could do was bad. I think we've got to address this issue. Policymakers, all of us have a responsibility to get this issue addressed, to take care of the people of Palestine. Uh, we need a two-state solution. I think that what Netanyahu is saying about uh, not having a two-state solution mm -hmm. is something we should all pay attention to. We've got to deal with this issue. I've been clear about that. So your colleague, Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, as she's seeking to succeed retiring Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow in Michigan's Senate race this year. Um, how concerned are you uh, that President Biden will be a drag on the ticket? I think President Biden's going to help people win in the end. I think we've got to roll up our sleeves. We've got to do a lot of hard work. We've got to educate people about what the issues are. There are going to be a lot of tough meetings. We've got to get in those halls. We've got to give people the facts. We've got to do the contrast. And we have to let people know what's at stake. And it's a long time between now and November. And we've got a lot of tough work to do. And we're going to do it. All right, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, Democrat from Michigan. Thanks. Good to see you as always. Thank you. On the Republican side of this race, Nikki Haley is back in her home state of South Carolina tonight. She'll spell out the next steps in her quest for the White House. What we're hearing from her campaign as a notable senator calls on Republicans to hold off on throwing their support behind Donald Trump. In our 2024 lead, Nikki Haley is setting her sights on South Carolina, her home Palmetto State. She's set to kick off her campaign in the Palmetto State tonight, just a day after her disappointing results in New Hampshire. CNN's Kylie Atwood is at Haley's South Carolina kickoff in North Charleston. Kylie, what is the mood on the Haley campaign today? Well, listen, Nikki Haley said last night that the race is far from over, and that's the mood among campaign officials. Obviously, you know, they're having conversations quietly about the path forward, but what they are saying is that that path forward is her defiance, that she is going to compete here in South Carolina for the Republican primary, which is a month from today. They point out that she did well with independence in New Hampshire. That'll be a critical part of the electorate in the general election. They point out that she has shown growing support from Iowa to New Hampshire, and here in 
South Carolina, they're already investing in TV ads. Listen to part of the pitch with a new TV ad out to voters here in South Carolina just today. Biden too old. Trump too much chaos. A rematch no one wants. There's a better choice for a better America. Her story started right here. America's youngest governor, a conservative Republican, and boy, did she deliver. Now, obviously, we're seeing growing support from Republican lawmakers backing former President Trump, increasingly so today after his victory in New Hampshire last night. Nikki Haley's campaign, for their part, is saying once again that the voters want a democracy. They want votes. They don't want a coronation. And of course, we'll watch to see what Nikki Haley has to say about that tonight. All right, Kylie Atwood in North Charleston. Thanks so much. Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine is, as of now, refusing to endorse Donald Trump for president, even though he won stunningly in neighboring New Hampshire last night. Collins also went on to praise Nikki Haley for staying in the race, saying, quote, I think the more people see her for her, particularly since she appears to be the only alternative to Donald Trump right now, the more impressed that they will be, unquote. My panel uh, joins us now. Um, do, you, do you agree with that? I do not share the senator's optimism that there is a path forward for Nikki Haley to be chosen as the Republican nominee. Now, that doesn't mean there's no reason to stay in. Uh, it is true that Donald Trump is winning a majority in the two contests we've had so far. Which has never um, happened before. Right. And so not to undercut that, I mean, he is the clear choice of Republican voters. But there's a not insignificant portion of the party that is saying... I'd like something new. It's not enough to make that path viable for her, but she could stick around and say, I want to give them a voice. But that's a, this is a really tough ask for the next couple of weeks, just as a sort of symbolic act. Uh, and Karen, sources told CNN's Caitlin Collins that despite Trump's historic win last night, <laughs> he spent the evening, quote, seething sure at did. Nikki Haley that she didn't drop out, maybe even that she took some shots at his uh, mental fitness. <laughs> um, he has told aides to ramp up his attacks against her. Yeah. Uh, I'm old enough to remember a nasty... I mean, South Carolina politics is rough. People get yes. personal, they lie, they make nasty yes. insinuations, racist, sexist, etc. That's say John McCain, George Bush? Well, the George W. Bush attack against <laughs> yeah. uh, campaign against John McCain is, is, is the one that I experienced as a cub reporter firsthand in, in 2000. Yeah. Right. Um, but I, I can imagine it getting even worse because Nikki Haley is A, Indian American, mm -hmm. B, uh, a woman, and mm -hmm. C, uh, it's... It's Donald Trump, not George W. Bush. <laughs> yeah, I'm old enough to remember uh, 2016. And there's something particularly about women that really gets under Donald Trump's skin, particularly women of color who don't do what he says. So I'm sure he was seething. And clearly now we're, he's, it's going to be full barrel at uh, Nikki Haley. And they're going to do everything they can to make her life miserable. And it's not just, the thing I think we have to remember, it's not just everything we see up here. It's all the oh, sure. disinformation and misinformation, social media. I mean, people forget that and he has over 60 million followers. So he is literally the source of information, news information for a lot of voters. So I'm sure it's gonna be very ugly. I think the problem she has, the math is just not there. If we just, you know, can she potentially win suburban voters can she potentially win you know some moderate republicans sure but her part of her problem is she's not able to win she's got to win core conservatives and yeah so far she hasn't been able to do that now i will say one thing like politics ain't beanbag right so right, i right. would expect this to get nastier and nastier as it gets more and more contentious but 
The speech that Donald Trump gave last night, in contrast to what he gave in Iowa, was so stark, right? In Iowa, it was conciliatory-ish. It was unifying-ish. Ish. Uh, yeah. That is not the tone he took last no, night. No, he's mad. And he, uh, it is going to drive me nuts when this election unfolds and the Trump folks, who now are a majority of the Republican Party, it's the establishment, absolutely, do everything they can to alienate those folks that say, I liked Nikki Haley, I preferred her, rather than trying to bring them back in the fold. Because Donald Trump may have a majority of Republicans, but he doesn't necessarily have a majority of voters. You need those Haley voters to come home. The meaner you are, the more you're like, don't let the door hit you on the way out. You don't get to cry then when those voters don't turn out for your guy in November. So, so, but the Republican establishment, which Donald Trump is, yeah. and the, you know, all of its members are coming home, the officials, not necessarily the voters. Mm -hmm. John Cornyn is, an, is a good example. Uh, he is now a member of the Republican establishment, not the, not the Trump establishment, but the Senate establishment. He told mm -hmm. uh, the Houston Chronicle last year, I think President Trump's time has passed him by. I don't think President Trump understands that when you run in a general election, you have to appeal to voters beyond your base, the exact point that you were just making. Last night, Cornyn came around and he went onto Twitter or X and posted, to beat Biden, Republicans need to unite around a single candidate. And it's clear that President Trump is Republicans' voters of choice. And he says, I'm going to be continuing to work to reflect a Republican Senate majority and to elect President Trump in 2024. Now, it's interesting how he phrased it. Mm -hmm. It's the same way that Ron DeSantis phrased it, which is nice. not... Donald Trump is the best. I love him. He's awesome. He's going to be a great president again. It's it's obvious that this is what the voters want. Hence, I am joining the parade. And I think we're going to hear that quite a bit in the next coming days and weeks as more sort of jump on the Trump train who may have as a way to not completely, uh, you know, alienate what they've said before, say, well, this is clearly what the voters want. So we've got to jump on at the same time. Interesting enough with Cornyn and others you're hearing from uh, folks at the, on the Republican side in the Senate and the House who recognize Trump at the top of the ticket could actually hurt their efforts down ballot. And I think the other thing here, just going back to this conversation about independence, that is good for Joe Biden because we heard a lot of voters in New Hampshire say, if it's not Nikki Haley, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden because I'm never going to vote for Trump again. And we heard that in New Hampshire also. That was interesting. Another, I wouldn't call this a wild card, but interesting news in politics today is that uh, Jon Stewart is going to return to The Daily Show on Comedy Central. He's going to host the program on Monday nights. Uh, other comedians will do the rest of the week. He's going to serve as the show's executive producer. You're cheering. You're, yes. you're very yes, excited about this. Great day for America. Yeah, well, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a good day for political humor in America. Yes. I, I guess my question is, do you you think it will impact the election at all? I do in that, remember, people get their information from lots of different types of sources. And we saw before when Jon Stewart was on the air, he actually does, he is a source of information for younger voters. It may make them go and learn more about an issue that they hear about from him. So I think it's absolutely a good thing. What do you think? Is, it, is his appeal kind of limited to blue or no? Well, I feel like, I wonder if his appeal is limited to elder millennials like me. <laughs> we talk about younger voters. What about, what about Gen X? John, uh, John Gen Stewart X. left The Daily Show, I believe, in 2015. Correct. It's been yeah. almost a decade since, since he's had led that program. So yesterday's young voters, we're now old. But, do you, but, he, but he can hop on the TikTok. It's not like yeah, he's not. And, and he had a show on Apple TV, and that, that had a, a broad demographic. So it would be interesting to see, though, to your point, who does he bring He's not back. a young buck, though, is your no. point. But well, he's still entertaining. And, and sure, does, does he adapt? Does he change anything to appeal to a yeah. younger audience? Or is he still just 
here for us old millennials. It's very, well, we're, we're, we definitely will all be tuning in. But we're uh, young Gen, Gen X. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm an old man. Kristen Solti Sanderson, Karen Finney, thank you so much. A CNN exclusive is next. Well, we're now learning about a House ethics investigation involving Republican Congressman Matt Gates of Florida and allegations against him. Stay with us. Breaking news, sources say that the House Ethics Committee investigating Republican Congressman Matt Gates of Florida has now reached out to the U.S. Justice Department and to a woman with whom the congressman allegedly had sexual relations when she was 17 years old. Elections that Congressman Gates denies. We should note Congressman Gates has never been charged with any wrongdoing here. CNN's Paula Reed has this exclusive reporting. Paula, what, what have we learned? So, Dave, we've learned that the House Ethics Committee investigating Congressman Gates has done a new round of outreach to potential witnesses, including a woman who was still 17 years old when she allegedly had sexual contact with Congressman Gates. We've learned they have also reached out to the Justice Department, asking for materials from its years-long investigation into the congressman, where they examined these allegations of possible sexual contact with a minor, along with other crimes. But as you noted, they did not ultimately opt to charge the congressman. Now, in response to our new reporting tonight, Jake, the congressman says, quote, those allegations were not true, have never been true, and the people who spread those lies have been exposed, indicted, and imprisoned. Remind us uh, how we got here, Paul. So back in late 2020, under Trump-appointed Attorney General Bill Barr, they opened an investigation at the Justice Department into whether Congressman Gates or his associates may have had sex with an underage girl, the woman who just received this outreach. Now, this expanded over several years to include also looking into allegations of possible lobbying violations, sex trafficking, and even obstruction of justice. But ultimately, as we've said, Congressman Gates was not charged, though his associate, Joel Greenberg, did admit to multiple crimes, including soliciting and having sex with that minor. Now, the Ethics Committee had its own probe starting in 2021 into the congressman, but then put that on pause to yield to the federal investigation. But after the federal investigation wrapped up last year, this was all revived. But this revival has not been without serious political consequence. Gates privately blamed former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy for reviving the ethics probe. And the former speaker has also blamed Gates's frustration about the ethics probe for, you know, Gates's work to try to push McCarthy out of his position. But we see even in a post-Speaker McCarthy world, the ethics probe not only continues, but appears to be ramping up. And do the people that the ethics committee reached out to, do they have to comply? We don't have to comply with a voluntary request for information, but then you do risk the possibility of a subpoena. Now, when it comes to the Justice Department, this is certainly not the first request for materials related to a sensitive investigation. Now, they are usually reluctant to just hand over files, particularly in a case like this. They may, depending on the request and the appropriateness of the request, be willing to engage in some sort of accommodation to give the committee some materials, but it's unclear exactly what they're looking for and what the Justice Department will be willing to hand over. All right, Paula Reed, thanks for that update. Uh, appreciate it. This next story might be hard to hear, but it is important to tell. A father lost his son to Hamas on October 7th in the Hamas terrorist attacks on Israel. The father scoured horrific videos trying to understand what, what happened to his son. And that father is going to share his grim, troubling story with us next. 
In our world lead now, Israeli troops are now surrounding Gaza's second largest city, Khan Yunus, as Israel defense forces say they will continue their heavy fighting until they dismantle Hamas strongholds in the area. The main United Nations relief agency in Gaza says there are mass casualties after a shelter housing tens of thousands of displaced Palestinians was struck. The IDF is investigating the strike and says it was not caused by Israeli artillery or aerial bombardment. Meantime, an Israeli official told CNN that any proposed deal between Israel and Hamas for a ceasefire has not reached the negotiating table, but that indirect talks are ongoing. This as freed hostages are currently pleading with the lawmakers of the Israeli parliament or Knesset to do more to help free the remaining hostages. Here's Aviva Siegel. I became a mother to young girls there. I want to tell you that the terrorists bring inappropriate clothes, doll clothes. They have turned those girls into their dolls. Dolls on a string that they can do whatever they want with whenever they want. It's unbelievable that they are still there. I can't imagine what they are feeling. I can't live with it. Four months after October 7th, more accounts of Hamas's brutal tactics and the atrocities committed by Hamas terrorists on that day are coming to light. I recently spoke with David Tahar, whose son, 19-year-old Adir, an IDF soldier, was killed on October 7th. I want to warn our viewers that the details of his son's story are very disturbing. And joining me now is David Tahar, the father of 19-year-old Corporal Adir Tahar, an IDF soldier who was killed on October 7th. Um, Mr. Tahar, it's tragic enough to lose a child, um, but explain how the details of his death were made worse as you learned more about what happened to your son. I can tell you that from an army investigation that was sent to us, the bereaved parents, the fighting that Adir and his friends did, it took about an hour, an hour and 20 minutes. While they were fighting, they managed to stop the terrorists. While they were fighting, five soldiers got killed, including Adir. I can tell you, I am certain that Adir, in order to kill Adir, they had to throw three grenades at him and then send a missile towards him as well. And only that way they could actually kill Adir. And after he died, the terrorist, the terrorists, they managed to enter the area. Some of the soldiers managed to retreat. The barbarian terrorists who entered the base, that area, they saw a soldier lying on the ground. What they decided to do at that moment, they decided to behead him and to take the head with them into Gaza. Now, this might be hard for some people to understand, but you went searching. You watched hours of videos from that day, and eventually you found the video to confirm your fears about Adir. Tell us about that. I can tell you that after the Shiva ended, the mourning period, I understood that I buried a headless child after the Shiva. Questions started to pop up. Where was the head? 
Is it because of the grenade or because of a missile? It didn't make sense to me that it would be anything else. I started asking why the head was not there. And I understood that he had been beheaded. That's how they managed to sever the head from the body. I started looking at Telegram. During the first month, especially in the first days of the war, the terrorists, the barbarian terrorists, posted online all the atrocities that they carried out. I just logged on to Telegram and watched every video I could find so I could maybe see my son in, in one of those videos. And I happened to find this video where I could see my son. I can clearly say that the soldier without a head that you can see in that video is my son. And then you heard more from the army. Tell us about that. I, I can tell you that for two months I turned to everyone I could in order to understand where the head was, to understand who picked the body, who handled it, and I understood that it was a certain unit in the Shura camp, I called them to ask, is it possible that by mistake the head is with them? Uh, they said no. And then one of the commanders called me, who did an investigation, carried out an investigation, and told me that it's most likely that the horrible terrorist took the head to Gaza. And that's how I understood that the head is not there. Two or three weeks after that, I found from another commander that the Shin Bet interrogated prisoners, terrorists that were kidnapped in Gaza arrested in Gaza, and while they were interrogating them, they understood that one of the terrorists said that he tried to sell the head, a soldier's head, that he has. That happened while he was interrogated. It was found out that they put the head in a black bag. They went to Palestine Square in central Gaza. They put it in an ice cream fridge inside a shop, that's where they hid it, in order to demand what, what they were promised, $10,000, when they bring a proof that they murdered a citizen or a soldier. And you got it back? Yes, an elite unit, an, an elite IDF unit brought it back. They took the terrorist. They were afraid that the bag was wired. They took him into the shop and they brought the bag. And inside the bag, there were Adil's head, his remains the remains of the head, 
And when they checked the teeth and when they tested the DNA, it was proven that it was actually a deer. And I got all these remains with a bag. I got that from the IDF Rabbanite. We opened a deer's coffin and we buried him again. I'm so sorry, David. I'm so sorry that this happened to you. What a horrible, horrible, horrible experience. It really is. It's very difficult. But it is important that the world understands what we're facing. It's important that people understand that what happened on the 7th of October, it can't happen again, not to Israel, the Israeli people, and not to anyone else. David Tahar, may Adir's memory be a blessing. I'm so sorry that you and your family have gone through that. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you very much, Mr. Tefer. Thank you very much. A spokesman for the Israel Defense Forces confirmed all of the details in David's story, uh, except for the $10,000 bounty, which they could not confirm. Next to an issue here in the United States that needs more attention, injustices in the American healthcare system, from racism to sexism. My next guest is in the system. She's a doctor. She says she's seen it happen, and she'll join us next. In our Health Lead, a deeply personal and profound look at the costs of healthcare in the United States. We're not talking about the huge medical bills so many of us face. Instead, how, how prejudice from racism to sexism can change not only the ways doctors see patients, but also the doctors that patients get to see. That's part of the focus of a fascinating new book called Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine, by Dr. Uche Blackstock, who joins us now. Uh, Dr. Blackstock, thanks for joining us. So this book begins with your own experience, which, which viewers of The Lead will know hits home to me uh, as well because of my daughter's experience of your misdiagnosed appendicitis. Tell us what happened. So I was, first of all, thank you so much for having me, but I was a first year medical student and I ended up having to go to the ER three times over the course of a week um, for abdominal pain, vomiting. I was told initially I had a stomach bug um, and then I ended up having a perforated appendix and that led to serious complications. But during those ER visits, you know, I was questioned about you know, my sexual activity, my pain was minimized and dismissed. And, you know, after, even though I was a medical student then, I actually felt worried about questioning the doctors. Um, I didn't feel like I had the right to. Um, and so I ended up being out of medical school for about a month and missing classes and having complications. And this is something that actually is very common. As you know, it happens to patients who are women and it happens to black patients more often than other patients. Yeah, this exactly happened to my daughter, uh, who's white, but female, and she very much feels like her experience and her pain was dismissed uh, by the doctors. Uh, and the same thing happened. They asked about her. I mean, she was like 12. They asked about her, her, her or maybe 13. They asked about her, like, they asked personal questions that had nothing to do with the fact right. that her appendix was perforated and, and leap and, and causing sepsis. Right. Exactly. And we know from studies that that this happens to women patients, black patients more often that, you know, it's called gaslighting where 
you know, they're saying I'm having these symptoms, but healthcare professionals actually of all, you know, genders and, and, and backgrounds actually are not listening to them. Um, and that ends up in delayed diagnoses, misdiagnoses, uh, harm to the patients, and sometimes even death. Well, I'm so glad you're okay. You also tell the story of your mother's experience. She was a brilliant doctor, a trailblazer. Yes. Sadly, she died at the age of 47 from leukemia. Tell us how her story helped to spur you to write this book. Yes, you know, definitely. So one thing that is very rare to say is I'm a second generation black woman physician. I am the first black mother daughter legacy from Harvard Medical School. And it was my experience, you know, being raised by a black woman physician and then, you know, seeing her diagnosed with a, a rare blood cancer at the age of 46, dying at 47, most likely from environmental exposures that she had in her neighborhood growing up in central Brooklyn um, in poverty. Um, so, you know, realizing that my mother died prematurely, likely because of um, exposures that she had because she was a poor black girl growing up in Brooklyn. And that really helped my journey from medical student to practicing physician to wanting to speak more about these health inequities that we see in our country. So what's your diagnosis of, the, of the, these problems? What prescriptions do you offer? Yeah, so, so in my book, I end it with a call to action. You know, I talk about the history of racism in medicine. It's very deeply rooted from, from slavery days. I talk about how black populations have been, you know, experimented on. We know the Tuskegee uh, experiment. And I say that, you know, medical schools, we need to really think about the way that we're educating our future physicians. We need to make sure they're recognizing their internal biases. We also need to hold hospitals and healthcare institutions accountable. We need to make sure that they are tracking these inequities with metrics, that they're intervening when needed, that they're getting feedback from patients, because what we're seeing in terms terms of you know these widening gaps especially you know we know that Serena Williams and Beyonce Knowles famous black women had su have suffered pregnancy related complications and even myself with a Harvard medical school degree I'm more likely to suffer pregnancy related complications than my white peers so we need to make sure our future physicians are educated our hospitals and healthcare institutions are held accountable and that our policymakers are really thinking about these issues and how to make our community safer and healthier. What's the response you've gotten to the book? I mean, I know it was just published, but, but has it been positive? Does it make you hopeful that change is possible or the, the other side of it? No, no, I, I mean, I wrote this book because I think deep down I, I am an optimist and I feel like the response has been amazing. I think that there are so many health professionals that want to do better for their patients and they don't really understand the history or how we got to where we are today. Um, and I, I think that there are healthcare institutions that also want to do better. So my hope is that this can be a, a electrifying and galvanizing call to action, that, that this book can really make people want to create systemic change. That's great. Dr. Uche Blackstock, so, so great to have you on. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. We'll be right back. In our pop culture lead today, wait, can we, uh, can we make it pink? Uh, a little purple. Anyway, it's better. In our pop culture lead, Barbie, produced by our parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery, picked up eight Academy Award nominations yesterday, including for Best Picture, but... Brilliant director Greta Gerwig got snubbed. She did not get a Best Director nomination. Barbie is a legitimate phenomenon, taking in $1.45 billion 
worldwide. The snub caused us to flash back to 1992 when there were similar allegations of sexism against the Academy, specifically the acclaimed and popular film The Prince of Tides, which Barbara Streisand directed. Streisand, too, earned no nomination, which Oscars host Billy Crystal famously noted in song. Seven nominations on the shelf. Did this film direct itself? From Barbara to Barbie, not only was director Greta Gerwig snubbed, so was Barbie lead actress Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, who played Ken and was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, put out a statement saying he was honored, but adding, quote, there is no Ken without Barbie and there is no Barbie movie without Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie. We should note that Gerwig is nominated for screenwriting and Robbie for producing. Barbie co-star America Ferrer was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. So come Oscar night, when it comes to winners, let's hope it's not just Ken. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, and on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can follow the show on X at The Lead, CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show whence you get your podcasts. Coming up next on The Situation Room, Wolf Blitzer has an exclusive interview with the second gentleman, Doug Emhoff, what the vice president's husband says about rising anti-Semitism in America and what can be done. That's next on The Situation Room, starting now. We'll see you back here on The Lead tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.